You are listening to the PRC Students Podcast. This sermon was recorded during one of our former student nights. You can also find and watch this sermon on our YouTube channel. We pray that the Lord speaks to you throughout this message. Thank you. Have a seat in this evening, and um, we can't start without saying, uh, God is good, and all the time. Julian wants me to say it one more time, so here we go. God is good, and all the time. God is good. Amen. We are here for our last youth night of this year. There we go. I was, I was waiting for those awes and the, the, the look of sadness on your faces. Um, we have some events throughout the rest of this year, Lord willing, but this is our last student night of the year. And um, if you are saying, Brother Johnny, it seems a little too early for, for Christmas music and for decorations and uh, Christmas trees... Let me just tell you that I start listening to Christmas music in about July. So for me, it's not early at all, okay? This is just the right time. Um, how many of you have ever made a bad deal in your life? You don't have to raise your hands. I know you're out there. Where you've just, you know, you, you're desperate. You're in a bad situation. And you made a bad deal. Um, I've made plenty of those. One of them happened when I was playing the game Catan. Everyone here knows Catan, right? The game that goes on for hours and usually ends with an earthquake when someone starts losing. Well, I was losing in one game, and I didn't want to do like a forearm massacre swipe, you know, over the whole board. So I decided to make a deal. And in that game, if you're not familiar with it, you have resources, like little cards, like wood and stone, and you build cities and settlements. And I was desperate. I was going to lose. So I made a deal with the best player on the board, which was my wife, right? She's really good at these games. I think she's beaten me like a hundred times. I've won once or twice. Um, But I made a bad deal. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I made it in the move of desperation. And because of that, as soon as I gave her the cards that she needed and I got my cards, uh, she started bidding, you know, uh, building cities and settlements and she won the game. And everyone was kind of telling me, like, hey, don't, don't do it. She's going to win the game. But I was so desperate, I made the move anyway. Um, in the words of, of uh, Donald Trump, it was the worst trade deal of all time, possibly in the history of trade deals, right? Um, but we've all been in, in those kinds of situations, and we find someone from Scripture that has also made a bad deal. And this person is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because it's, it's a long passage, but if you want to make a note of it and then read it at home, please feel free. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to try to get my iPad to turn the right way. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Um, so, in Isaiah chapter 7, there's a king, and his name is Ahaz. And he's in a tough situation. He is the king of Judah. Now, remember... After King Solomon, the kingdom of of Israel split up. There were two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. 
And they were fighting against each other. Not only was the northern kingdom, Israel, fighting against the southern kingdom, which is King Asa and um, the kingdom of Judah, but also the kingdom of Syria, modern-day Syria, was fighting against King Ahaz as well. So he had two kingdoms fighting against him, and he was desperate. Along comes Isaiah, though. And he says in chapter 7, you know, not to worry, God has a plan. Don't worry about it. These two kingdoms, in in a certain amount of time, they're not even going to be around anymore. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it. And Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, even says, why don't you ask a sign from me just to show you that what I'm saying is true? And King Ahaz says, oh no, I couldn't possibly tempt the Lord or ask of him such a thing. We read that at first glance and we're like, wow, what a, what a righteous guy. What a humble guy. He doesn't want to tempt God and ask something, ask a sign from him because he's not, I don't know, worthy enough to ask whatever. The problem was something else, though. King Ahaz already made a deal with somebody else, a bad deal. He made a deal with the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians, The Syrian empire during this time was the most feared empire in that region. They were ruthless. They were um, a terror anywhere they went. And he didn't want to be under their rule either, so he went and made a deal with their king, taking gold and silver from the temple of God up to the king of Assyria and said, help me against these people. Here's all the gold. Here's the silver that we have from the temple of God. King Ahaz was not a righteous man. He was not a righteous king. And Scripture says that at one point he even sacrificed his own son to try to get some counsel from the gods or from someone else. So he was not a righteous man. He made a very bad deal. What happens? Well, God gives him victory anyway. God has a plan. God gives him victory over these kings and, and, and attacking forces. But the problem is still there with King Ahaz in his nation, with his kingdom. Internally, there is uh, a lack of morals. Internally, people are uh, godless. They're worshiping idols. They are seeking answers from witches and mediums and their dead ancestors And externally, they're still having battles against other kingdoms and other nations. And so it looks like the situation is lost. Isaiah, though, comes in, and throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8, he has this this, uh, um, um, uh, picture of doom and gloom for Uh, This nation for King Ahaz because King Ahaz put his hope in the wrong people. He he made plans with the wrong kingdoms. He uh, got a really, really bad deal. And so in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, here's how it ends. And if we could project that to show it. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. um, And they will look to the earth, but behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick Darkness. This is the people that are in the kingdom that God and Isaiah are talking about. 
And so if up to now you're saying, Johnny, I thought this was a Christmas program. Where's, where's the manger? Where are the animals? Well, hold on to your Santa hats because we're about to get there, okay? In chapter 9, here we go. In, in Isaiah chapter 9 with verse 1, this is right after what we just read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into content the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. This is the land in the north. But in the latter time, so later, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And we skip down to verse 6, and we're all familiar with these verses. For to us, or for unto us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah, as he's speaking on behalf of the Lord to the people of of, of, of Judah and to, to the king, he has a prophecy. He says, listen, right now there's doom and gloom. Right now, God's not happy with the way things are going. But he has a plan. It goes from gloom to glory. It says that there will be a glorious way from Galilee of the nations. And he goes and talks about a son that is given, a child that is born. And we know that this foretells the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. When it says a child is born, it talks about his humanity, how he was 100% human. A son is given. This is his deity. This is 100% God. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior that they have been waiting for. And he begins to give some titles to this son, some titles to this child. And this was very common during that time when the king would come, when, when a, um, a child would be crowned king or anyone, they would give titles upon him, you know, uh, ruler of this land and that land, father of this and that. So they would give titles to him. So these are the titles of the king of kings. And it starts by saying, wonderful counselor. Now, in some translations, this wonderful counselor is broken up into two separate Ideas, so it might have a comma in between them. I know in the Romanian version, um, it, uh, it has that, or in the KJV version, it has a little comma in there. Um, that's not really a big deal. Whatever. We're going to look at it together as one idea because it makes sense that way. And to be honest, a lot of translations do it that way, and I think it works better as well. Uh, King A has had the opportunity to seek counsel and to seek advice from God, but he chose not to because he was wrapped up in a bad deal. King Ahaz had an opportunity to listen to the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah said, ask a sign from the Lord. Ahaz could have put aside his ego, his stubbornness, his foolishness, and said, okay, God, show me this and this, and then I will believe, and I'll have faith, and I'll go on. But he was too wrapped up in his own plan, in his own ambition. And how many times... Do we 
because of a bad plan we've made, because of mistakes that we've made that we think we have to suffer in, ignore turning to God for advice and hide instead in our bad decisions and in our bad shames. I said earlier in the previous sermon that um, two bad decisions don't make a right decision. If you're on the path, if something's messed up, you can't just continue in it and say, well, at least I'm being honest and, you know, or, or being consistent. Well, yeah, you're consistently wrong, okay? You're consistently wrong in the decisions. What God is asking, saying, turn from that, listen to me no matter where you are, and listen to my advice. Uh, instead of that, King Ahaz turned to witches, to mediums. I mean, he sacrificed his son just because he was caught up in his own way. Now, it says wonderful counselor. Um, when we think of the word counselor, uh, at least for me, I think of like a high school counselor. Uh, I remember, I don't know, it was 11th grade. I think it was mandatory for each student to go. And I spoke with my high school counselor about college plans, what I need to do to graduate, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I remember sitting in her office. She had like a Joel Osteen book on there, you know, living your best life now. Some other things, very inspirational ideas out there. And... Um, she told me a few tidbits, maybe 15 minutes, and that was that. The next person came in. Well, in this context, when it says wonderful counselor, it doesn't just mean that God is someone that you go to and say, Lord, what do you think about this? Can I take 15 minutes of your time and give me some advice on how to deal with this? The word wonderful in here denotes actually something more like miraculous, extravagant, a miraculous counselor. This word of wonderful, the, the root word, is found also in Exodus 15 when Moses is singing a song and saying, the Lord has taken us out of Egypt miraculously. It's the same word there. Not only does God provide advice, he provides miraculous advice. He provides advice that exceed our expectations. He goes above and beyond what anyone else on earth would think God counsels you in such a way that it takes you to the miraculous. He's not just a let's get by with the bare minimum kind of counselor. He's a miraculous solutions kind of counselor. In Romans chapter 11 with 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. That question is still valid for us today. Who has ever decided they need to counsel God? Sometimes we feel like that's our job. Unfortunately, in our prayers without even thinking about it, God, don't you think it would be a good idea for this? Lord, I really think this is the best way to go. And the word is saying, who counsels God? Who can search his infinite, his unsearchable ways? Nobody. Who can know the depths of his wisdom? Nobody. His advice, his counsel is wonderful, extravagant, miraculous. That's what we have when we go to Jesus. We have a wonderful, a miraculous counselor. His counsel is never ever improved by us. His counsel will not only lead you to the right decision, 
but it will yield miraculous results. It will lead you in a way that exceeds all of your expectations. That's the miraculous and wonderful counselor that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah goes on, and he says he's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's a mighty God. Um, there's a saying out there um, that goes like this. Those who can't do, teach. Have you heard of that? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, well, me as a teacher of the Word of God, I don't agree with that. I don't, but I've heard it so many times. Well, those who can't do, teach. I don't think that's true, and here's why. Because there are certain people that do, but can't teach. There are certain people that can do something really, really well, but don't have the patience or the understanding or the empathy maybe to teach someone else. And you might know someone like that, someone that's just really good at what they do, and you ask for their help or to, to teach you, and they're just like, well, you just do it. You know, I don't know, you just do it. Um, that's why there's teachers. <laughs> there's teachers and there's people who uh, go into different professions. The point of this is, um, Jesus doesn't fit into one of these two categories. He doesn't just counsel people and then leave it at that. He doesn't just sit in a lofty throne room and um, uh, just dole out advice and give wisdom to people and then just lay back and see what happens. He's a mighty God. He's a warrior. He goes and he fights those battles as well. With King Ahaz, he was saying, don't worry about this. Don't do this. Because what? The Lord will give you victory. The Lord will give you victory. I'm reminded of the story of Gideon. Remember when Gideon started out with uh, tens of thousands of people, I think 20-something thousand, if I'm not mistaken, of soldiers. And God said, you have to whittle it down. You have to whittle it down. And Gideon says, I only have 300 left. And I look at the army, and there's tens of thousands of them. And God says, I want you to see that this battle that's about to be won is for my name and for my glory and not for yours, because I am a mighty God. So what happens? As soon as those 300 soldiers of Gideon blow their trumpets, the enemy turn their swords upon one another and they destroy, and they flee. And the glory goes to God, and the victory is God's. Amen? When God asks us to do something, when he is our wonderful counselor, when he is our advisor, and we go to him, and we say, Lord, I am at a standstill. I am at a crossroads. There's a fork in my road, and I don't know which way to go. I need your advice. Lord, there's a battle in front of me. Lord, there's a struggle in front of me. Lord, there's temptation in front of me. God will give you the advice on what to do, and by the power of his spirit and by his word, he will give you the strength to win in it by his glory and for his glory alone. Amen. This is our God, a mighty God that we serve. The word mighty refers to to a a military strength, um, to something that's much more powerful than just the way that, you know, a father sees his, or sorry, that a child sees his, his, his dad, you know. My daddy's strong, my daddy's stronger than yours. Yes, God is stronger than anyone on earth, but it's much more than that. He is a warrior, he is a fighter. He goes and he fights our battles for us. And our battles are not against what? Flesh and blood. By the princes, the principalities of this world that seek to destroy you and to destroy me. And we can do nothing about it. They're an invisible enemy 
that only God can conquer, only God can destroy. And we come to him as a wonderful counselor and we come on our knees and we say, Lord, I seek your advice and Lord, not just that, I need you to win this battle. If you've been trying to win your battles for so long and you failed, here's why. You can't do it. You cannot do it alone. I've tried and I failed many, many times. I've put trust in myself I said, I'm going to um, avoid this. I'm going to be strict on this. I'm going to follow these rules and these laws, and I'm going to win the approval of God. And that's not what has happened ever in my life because that's not how it works. The greatest weapon that we have is our complete surrender to the mighty God. And if we learn to do that, if we really learn to surrender our bowels to God, not that we're lazy, not that we just lay back and let anything happen to us. We, we have a role as well, but if, if, if we really truly believe that victory is in the name of Jesus and not in the name of Johnny or Julian or Andrew or anyone, then we will be victorious. And that's what these two couple together means, is we have a God, Jesus, who through his infinite wisdom and counsel not only shows a way, but then paves the way for us to follow down because he is not just our counselor he is our mighty god hallelujah god is the one that fights every single battle our battle belongs to the lord isaiah continues and he talks about jesus as the everlasting father the everlasting father now first glance this might raise a red flag because you're like wait a second i thought there was god the father and god the son so why is he referring to Jesus as an everlasting father? Well, first of all, it's true. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the triune God. This is the, tr the, the, um, the Trinity. And they're very important and very distinct roles that we have to appreciate and we have to mention. Um, but this is more like saying that Jesus is father-like, that he has the attributes, the qualities of a father. In John chapter 14 with verse 18, we read this. Um, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he uses this language of, of, of being a father, of us being the orphans. It says that he has adopted us into his family. So that's what this means when it says that he is an everlasting father. He is... Um, father-like. And if you want to know what God the Father looks like, you have to first go through Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. In John chapter 14 with verse 9, we see him say this. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So yes, they are distinct, but at the same time, the only way to know God the Father is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says also in John, in John 17 that I am in the Father and the Father is with me. So it, it's this relationship that, you know, if you think about it too much, it won't make sense because our minds are so limited. But we have the Word of God that shows us that they are distinct and Jesus is the everlasting Father. Now, fathers play an extremely important role in our lives. There's a lot of statistics out there about kids who grow up from an early, early age without fathers, and there's thousands of them out there, but it all kind of sums up into this. Uh, a 26-year-long study 
researchers found that the number one factor in developing empathy in children was father involvement. The number one factor was the involvement of fathers in their lives. Fathers spending regular time alone with their children translated into children who become compassionate adults. And we all have special relationships with, with our fathers. I tried not to disappoint my father growing up. I remember when I was young, I think second grade, on the playground, I broke my collarbone right here, my clavicle, right? I fell down from the swing set and I broke it. And I didn't want him to know. I don't know why. I was just like, he, he's going to be mad at me. Uh, and come up with, I don't know, we have to go to the hospital now. We got to take x-rays. And I, I, was, I was like seven years old. So I remember he, when he came to pick me up from school, um, I opened the car door with my left hand. And I was trying to keep my right arm really still. And, and I got in the car. And he was, um, well, this is before cell phones. So he wasn't listening on cell phone. He wasn't talking to cell phone. But he was, he was, he was uh, distracted, not really paying attention. So I thought, okay, maybe I can get away with it. So I pulled over with my left hand and tried to close the door. But that caused me such pain that I cried. I was like, ah. And I yelled out. And he turned and he said, what's wrong? And that's when I broke down. and said, please don't be mad. I broke my, my, my bone and everything. Of course he wasn't mad. Of course he wasn't mad. He, he took me home and I remember he made appointments and we went to the doctor, we got an x-ray and sure enough it was cracked and I was in a sling for a few months. But I didn't want to disappoint my father. And we tend to apply the attributes that we have with our earthly fathers to our father in heaven. This could be good or bad. If our fathers weren't the best examples, or if they were very strict, strict to the point of, I mean, you couldn't do anything. You had, I mean, it was just very, very strict. You might think of God the Father as just super strict, and you have to earn his love and earn his loyalty and earn his respect. Um, maybe if, if the Father wasn't present or just always at work and gone, maybe, maybe your view of God is, well, God doesn't really care about me. God's never there to listen to me. It's very closely intertwined. Here's what Psalm 103, 13 says. Psalm 103 with verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. When we sin, if we sin, our first tendency is to run away, is to hide, right? I broke my bone, I don't want anyone to see me. When you sin against God, you want to hide, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They clothe themselves, and they try to run away and hide from God, and God had to call out, where are you? That's our carnal instinct, because we fear that God will be just so disappointed in us that there's no forgiveness for us, that there's no place for us at his house. And so we listen to this lie, and we go deeper and deeper into our bad decisions and our bad deals because we say, I'm done for anyway. I've made so many bad mistakes. I've thought of things in such a wrong way. I might as well be consistent and go on. And that lie has ruined many lives. That lie has ruined many lives, young and old, of people who think they are too far from God. But here's what the Word of God 
shows us, and we just read it. God the Father shows compassion to his children, those who fear him. What's it mean to fear him? Fearing God means that you see the sin that you have in your life. You see the mistakes you've made in your life. And you realize that there's no other hope for you. There's no other hope for you on that day of judgment. There's no other hope for you when God calls us for judgment because we stand before one who is pure, who is righteous, who is all-loving, but at the same time, in his love and in his justice and righteousness, he has to punish good and evil. And if we continue on that path, if we don't fear that day, if we don't fear God in that way, then we're going to go down the wrong path. And God right now is telling us, turn to me. See that I am holy, that I am righteous. See that where you are is not in a holy and righteous spot. And all of us were there, every single one of us were in that spot. And turn to me. Because as we said before, if you fear God, when you come before God, as all the people did in Scripture, even Isaiah, when he comes and says, woe unto me, I am a man of unclean lips, and he throws himself on the floor, and other people in Scripture that see angels and see God and, and, and just see how sinful they are, what does God tell them? Fear not. Fear not. Because when you come into the fear of God, you're not living under the thumb of a tyrant. You're living in the arms of a father. And he says, when you come to me, listen, I'm your dad. You have nothing else to fear around you. When you come to me in fear of who I am and my holiness and righteousness, and you see the sin that's destroying your life, and you see that I cannot be around sin, you come to me, I will have compassion on you. I will take you in my arms. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And you have nothing else to fear. King Ahaz, you will have nothing else to fear from the armies around you. King Ahaz, you don't have to make those bad deals. And he's talking to us today and he's saying, we don't need to continue in those bad deals, in those bad decisions. We need to come to one who is not just a wonderful counselor, not just one who is a mighty God, but a father, a heavenly father who will counsel us and fight for us at the same time, hold us and make sure that no one else attacks us and make sure that he fights our battles for us with the tenderness and compassion of a father. And that is what it means to have Jesus as our everlasting father. That's what it means to have a father forever. So I encourage you, if maybe your idea of God as a father or Jesus as a father-like figure has been twisted and contorted maybe by the father figures in your life, Search the scriptures. Know God. Know the Father. Know his heart. See the compassion that he has. See that he wants to counsel you. He wants to fight for you. He wants to literally hold you in his arms and take you to the rock that is higher than anything else and lead you to the place that we're about to talk next. Because Isaiah says, not only is he a wonderful counselor, not only is he a mighty God, not, ever, not only is he an everlasting father, he is a prince of peace. And God will lead you to a place of peace. King Ahaz would have certainly wanted peace in his lifetime. Um, what's really interesting is that after King Solomon, Solomon didn't have any like, fights during his, his, his uh, kingship. It was all peace, and he made the nation prosperous. But after Solomon, the nation broke up. The kingdom broke up, and there was fight and war. And up until the day that Israel was just completely dismantled, 
And Isaiah talks about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. Um, interesting story about this. A few years ago when I was the leader of the worship team, um, I sent the group a message saying, hey, here's the set list for the upcoming Friday. And on there, I had the song Prince of Peace. And everyone was like so excited about the song. And I was thinking, man, this song's, you know, in my mind, it's kind of an oldie. It's that song by Michael W. Smith, right? You are holy, you are holy, right? Is that, you know, Prince of Peace song? And I was like, man, everyone's getting excited for this throwback from the 90s. Wow, this is, I guess I can, I can kind of, you know, choose them, right? I, I, I know what the youths want. Well, so we get to practice, and I show them the song, and I just see their faces like, oh. Not that they hated the song, and don't worry, none of those people are here, okay? <laughs> it's not anyone over here. <laughs> this was a long time ago. And, and I show them the song, and they're like, oh, it's, is this one? Like the Michael W. Smith? I thought it was the Hillsong one that just came out like two months ago. I thought we were going to do a new one. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I cannot do that song. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like it, but I cannot do that song. Um, the one by Hillsong goes like this. Uh, My heart a storm, clouds raging deep within. The Prince of Peace came bursting through the wind. The violent sky held its breath, and in your light I found rest. And the song is on the right track, because when we talk about the Prince of Peace, we're not necessarily talking about a peace from all warfare around us. And I think that's kind of obvious right now, right? Jesus, while he was on earth, um, was alive, uh, was crucified, dead, buried, and then raised to life again and ascended to heaven. Yet there's still war around us 2,000 years later. Uh, the peace that is being talked about here is, is much deeper than that. And Jesus himself says it in John chapter 14 with verse 27. He talks about peace like this. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is an internal peace. And this peace does a few things. First and foremost, it brings us at peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, with verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul say, say this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we can't know God the Father unless we have been brought at peace through Jesus Christ the Son. It brings us at peace with God. We're no longer enemies or at enmity with God. In Galatians chapter 5 with verse 22, it says this as well, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So not only are we at peace with God, but we have peace within as well through the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we find this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this peace that has brought us to God, this inner peace that we have within us, has to flow to others as well. And we must be at peace with others as well. 
The Prince of Peace gives us peace, but it doesn't mean that it will be easy. When we think of peace, it's not in the sense of like a nirvana, right, of a sort of, uh, there are no worries in the world, uh, nothing bad will ever happen. No, no, no. Jesus says that we should expect suffering, we should expect trials and tribulations, but that he will give us help, that he will be our wonderful counselor, that he will be our mighty God, that he will be our Father, and that he will give us peace that transcends all understanding. That on the darkest of days, in the hardest of hours, we search and we go to our Father and we say, Lord, I need peace. And it can't come from me. It can't come from you. There are those days when only the Spirit can bring that tumult in your life back in order. There are many times where I've, I've, uh, I would have an unsettled spirit. Maybe you guys have had that too. You just, you're just not in a, in a comfortable place. You're going through things. You're seeking God, but at the same time, you're just seeking an answer or seeking a way, and you open up the Word of God. And man, you know, it doesn't happen every single time, but sometimes are we just like one verse, just randomly, and like the overflowing peace of God comes and fills and I can't explain it. I wish I could explain it. It's supernatural. It comes from our supernatural, miraculous counselor. If you've never experienced that, that's not just for me, that's for you as well. That's the peace that the prince provides. It's an inner peace that comes only from him, not dependent on anything that we do, not dependent on anything that we've earned. Oh, hallelujah. It's only because of God and his grace and him as a father that sees us and in our darkest hour comes and gives us peace. That is what the prince of peace does. I'd like for us to stand up and invite the team back up here. Jesus, our counselor, who not only gives us the advice on what to do, but also has the power to do those things as well. With the tenderness of the heart of a father, we'll do all those things and more. We'll give you peace. We'll give you inner peace. Further in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, Isaiah sees further. He goes beyond the birth of Jesus, and he sees from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of hosts will do this. And Jesus, when he comes back again as a victorious Savior, will bring about eternal peace. It says earlier that his peace and his kingdom will expand without end. He will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And Isaiah saw that and he wrote about it. So in this evening, we worship not just a Jesus who came on earth as a child, the one who will come back, one who will come back and take his children 
one who will come back and establish a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth. He will be the infinite counselor. He will be the almighty God. He will be the everlasting father. He will be the prince of peace and nothing shall ever, ever, ever conquer that. That will be forever. So look, here's the deal. Like King Ahaz, we are surrounded by enemies. If you don't know Jesus personally as your Savior, not only do you have the devil who wants nothing more than to take your soul for himself and steal it, the Word says in, in Romans chapter 5 that our sin fell short of the glory of God. We fell short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 5, it says that we were enemies of God. It says that we were at a distance from him. But the power of Jesus brought us back to him. But if you do not know Jesus, you do not know the Father, you do not know God, and you're in a bad place, it's a bad deal. From all around you, the pressure's coming in. You might make a better deal or think you have a better deal in the short term. You know, you might try to find religion somewhere else or to find self-help books or to try to figure it out on your own, but that's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. And, you know, on that final day, um, we find that we didn't have a good deal at all. But God has a great deal. God has a great plan, and here's what it is. He gave to us a son. Even from hundreds of years before his birth, he prophesied through Isaiah, and he said, I'm going to give you guys a child, my own son, and he will provide a way for you back to me. He will give you the best deal of all time, the best deal in the history of mankind. What's required from us is nothing more than this. As the three wise men, the three magi came and they saw the child and they saw him, they kneeled and they worshiped. They surrendered. That's it. I've said this, I don't know how many times, but our greatest weapon, the only thing we can offer really to God is our surrender. That's it. Our ambitions, our doubts, our hopes, our dreams in the hands of one who is infinitely wiser, infinitely stronger, infinitely more loving and caring and compassionate, and infinitely more peaceful and can bring about an everlasting peace. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that came humbly in the manger 2,000 years ago. If you haven't accepted that deal, that offer, it still stands tonight. There will be a day when it's void, when you can't accept it anymore. But as of right now, in God's grace, you can still accept it. If you are one of those who have accepted the deal and you've, you've said, Lord, I surrender, I give you my all, my life, I worship you. But in this time, in this season, maybe we've had the mentality of King Ahaz and said, I don't want to bother God. I don't want to ask a sign from him. I don't want to, to um, have anything to do with God because I think I have this figured out. And like I said before, I've been in that situation many times. And what does Scripture say? That God makes the proud humble. He brings them down. 
And I'm so thankful that he does because when I come down on my knees and I see the mighty God that we serve and I say, how could I ever think that I would do this better than God can? How could I ever think that I can fight against spirit and against spiritual warfare and against my temptations by myself without turning to God, without seeking him? Well, I'm afraid that God will turn me away. God will not turn you away. Listen to me. God will not turn you away. The word says, draw near to me, cleanse your hands, and he will draw near to you. Says that in James. God has promised us that he will do these things. This passage ends with the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do these things. He has promised that he will send this child, he will send the son, and he has, and he has promised to us that if we turn to him and we ask for forgiveness and we ask for his sanctification and we ask for his spirit, by his grace alone, he will give it to us. Amen? Don't listen to the lie that you are too far gone. Do not listen to the lie that there is no hope for you, that when Jesus came, it was not for you. It was for every single person here on earth. The problem is, do you accept this truth? Do you feel that conviction of the Spirit? Do you feel the, the, this, this uh, a movement upon you that's supernatural, that's not from yourself? It says, Lord, I've messed up. Lord, I'm at this place where I've made decisions on my own. But now I want to turn to you and not be like King Ahaz. I want to seek your counsel. I want to seek your strength. Seek your heart of a father and seek your peace. That's your prayer tonight. Then let it be so in the name of Jesus as we worship and sing. Amen.